Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm Paul Anderson. If you're familiar with Image, then you know that we're searching for the place where art, faith, and mystery collide. Our quarterly journal has been in print for over 25 years, and we're still making new discoveries. We featured some of the most prominent artists and religious voices of our generation. People like Marilyn Robinson, Sufjan Stevens, Mary Oliver, and Annie Dillard, to name a few, and we don't plan on stopping anytime soon. The conversations that take place in the pages of our journal, our daily blog, newsletter, and at our annual summer workshop in Santa Fe are rich and far-reaching. And with this show, we want to bring those words and conversations directly to you. We'll talk about books, artists, movies, and music that we think you ought to know about. We'll talk to our favorite artists and writers, many of whom you'll know and some of whom you won't. And since we know that many of our listeners are artists and writers themselves, we'll also be talking about the process and craft of art making, a mystery in its own right. We'll feature short stories, poems, and essays that you can only find in the pages of Image, because we think that hearing those words out loud is worth your while. We have a very special guest on our show today, so this episode will be slightly different from those that follow. I think of the kind of drama that Roman Catholicism gave my parents, who had no education, and gave me, at early points of my education, the convenience to be able to enter a beautiful place, architecturally beautiful building, and to listen to music that was substantial. The Mozart Mass at Easter. You probably recognize that unforgettable voice. If you don't, it's the inimitable Richard Rodriguez. Hailed in the Washington Post as one of the most eloquent and probing public intellectuals in America, Richard Rodriguez published Hunger of Memory in 1982. His second book, Days of Obligation, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. His most recent book, Darling, explores the significance of desert landscapes in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and has been called a rich tapestry, a Persian carpet of a book. He's this year's recipient of Image's Denise Levertov Award, an honor given to one artist whose work exemplifies a serious and sustained engagement with the Judeo-Christian tradition. He joined us in Seattle to address an expectant and admiring crowd, and he blew us all away. Here he is with Gregory Wolf. Richard Rodriguez, welcome to the Image Podcast. Thank you. So, I was asking you a little bit, a little while ago, what were you working on now? And you were about to say something about reading and writing. And well, just as I've, I, keep, I continue reading and I'm writing less. Partly because um, I don't, you know, the old Emersonian injunction that it takes a good reader to make a good book. I'm finding myself now in a world in which I suspect there are fewer readers who take pleasure in complicated sentences, um, that people want things simplified. Now, I worked, I've worked in many, many forms. I've worked as a newspaper writer of commentaries. I've worked on television. I've worked on radio. I know how to change my voice and how to make it more complicated and more simple. I've always had the freedom in writing literary essays to write complicated prose with the assumption that there were people who would take pleasure in that kind of complication. I no longer assume that. I no longer assume that that some of my, what I would consider my most interesting essays now are accessible or even uh, inviting to most uh, 
common readers in America. So I've grown, I've, you know, this is appropriate to my age too, at 72. I've become petulant. And I'm like, a, you know, the beautiful film star who finds that the producers don't call her anymore. Um, I find that the people I used to work for at that newspaper are all gone, that the people I used to work for at that television network have all been fired or retired or died. And so the phone doesn't ring in the same ways. And, um, and I find that I'm just disconnected from the world that I used to assume was mine. So I go to a small college in Minnesota, for example, and the school is so sweet. This is a Lutheran college in St. Paul that they've got the local bookstore to have copies of my books. Well, there must have been 200 copies of the various books I've, I've written. And um, this forlorn woman was sitting at the desk waiting to sell one of the books after this, my presentation. And the students rushed out of the presentation at lunch hour, going to other things. There were no townspeople as far as I could tell, or they were lost in the crowd. And not a single book was sold. And I looked at her, and she looked at me. <laughs> and we realized that we had come to end times, that this is the end of things. And so if people ask me now when I make appearances, do you want to have a signing of your book? I said, no. That humiliation I don't go through anymore. And even when I do television interviews and so forth, and they flash a copy of one of my books on the screen behind I tell them to take it down. It's, it's just it's humiliating to me. I don't want, I don't want the least listener of this broadcast looking on Amazon, sniffing at it to find a copy of my book. Uh, I don't care about that anymore. I don't believe in it. I don't believe that they're readers, serious readers. And the accidental readers that I've had now over my lifetime, um, I'm grateful for, but I don't assume anymore in the world. What happened to my bookstore in San Francisco, this was the El Carries Trade bookstore downtown. It's a bookstore that you own. It, I, I was a co-owner of it. It had been around for about 80 years. It was um, a store that the upper class of San Francisco used, and particularly the women, the socialites, who themselves had not gone to college, surprisingly. They'd gone to France, maybe, uh, but they didn't go to college. And over the years, they used that bookstore as a kind of tutorial. So they would come in and ask for a recommendation about a, a book on Japanese horticulture, or they would ask for a book on... The French ambassador was coming to dinner. Could we have a book on... On, on French uh, military history in the Second World War or something like that. And we gave them those books, and that was their conversation. And they learned. They read widely and, uh, and well, and then they began to die. Their daughters did go to college, and we would see their daughters less frequently. Their daughters usually had an avocation, like uh, they were interested in crime, crime literature, British mystery novels, and so forth and we would save books for them. The granddaughters would come in maybe at Christmas and would buy picture books, you know, Bruce Weber's book of photographs, Naked Men and Their Dogs or something, and off they would go, and we would never see them again, uh, these hideous girls who went off to the Ivy League and uh, turned into uh, mad housewives of, of men, equally obnoxious. The store closed, and uh, we had a cocktail party for, I think, 700 people, customers of ours. Um, this, there are no bookstores downtown San Francisco anymore. Uh, and, and our store, which is where people used to come between arrival downtown and a lunch date and, and just browse through a, a, a bookstore, that's gone. And I feel that loss enormously. I feel that the loss of that kind of bookstore. 
But more importantly, when I tell people why it, 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 we lost that store, it was not Jeff Bezos and his little factory at Amazon and these, these books that are priced down, 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 down to $2. Will you buy this book for a dollar? Will you buy this book for 50 cents? <laughs> Jeff Bezos with his little giggle wandering, wandering far afield. It, what closed our bookstore was death, that we lost our best customers, and we, we could not replace them. You know, I often rail against what I call the narrative of decline, but it's hard not to buy into this particular narrative <laughs> of decline. I mean, the need is still there. The need the, for yeah, and maybe this kind of conversation, these podcasts, uh, even the TED lectures, which I don't listen to, people still feel a need for uh, an idea. Uh, but I think we are moving quite clearly certainly when I see young people and talk to them, from the um, culture of ideas to the culture of opinions. And, uh, I mean, you, you, when, you, when you see something like Rotten Tomatoes, for example, which uh, will gather as a critical opinion as an aggregate, you know, and will take a sentence from that newspaper in Sydney, Australia, and that review in the New York Times and so forth, and will sort of give them a numerical um, average, and then gets a few uh, reader responses and so forth, you realize that nobody wants to read Pauline Kael. Nobody wants to read a 5,000-word essay on Bertolucci, for example. That seems to be gone now. Um, no one wants to go to movies. You, go to, uh, you talk to young people, they don't go to movies anymore. They don't go to plays. I was at a, a wonderful play in Berkeley the other day, and I noticed during intermission that everybody seemed to be over 60 or 70 years of age. There was a woman who recognized me from television days, this elderly woman. I said, where are all the young people? She said, darling, she said, young people don't go to play. She said, what, did you, didn't you know that? I said, but everybody on the stage is young. She said, that's different. They still want to be actors. They don't want to watch the play. They want to be actors in it. Um, well, you can say that about writing, too. I go to many, many writing classes where it is clear to me that, that the writing students do not read. They want to write, but they have no literary experience. They have no rivals, so that when the, uh, the, the young man comes in to write a novel about uh, growing up in Wyoming, he hasn't read D.H. Lawrence. Um, he has no rival to describe a man's relationship uh, to an animal, to a, to, a, to, a, to a horse, or a woman's for that matter. Um, and what you could do with some some of a scene, um, cleaning a horse, uh, washing a horse down, what you could do with a scene in literary terms, well, Lawrence could give you that scene. And then you can see whether you can write it better than Lawrence, which is what we do as writers. We are constantly fighting our forefathers, the writers who have gone before us, unwriting what they've done, trying to do better what they, what they have done, and so forth. Well, you get into a writing class where no one is read, it is, it's, it is eerie because they want to be read, but they don't want to read. I was at a journalism class the other day in California, and it was clear that none of these journalists, as they call themselves, read newspapers. They don't read magazines. And that it, it occurs to me that we are moving so deeply into this age of opinion that probably the only thing that interests us now are these numbers that pollsters compile to tell us what we are thinking. These many people think that Donald Trump should be impeached, we say, you know. And that's supposed to be, uh, that's supposed to tell us something. 
because we don't want to talk to people about about opinions and about what they're thinking about death or what they're thinking about anything for that matter. Um, so we get a poster to call somebody who's harassed at dinner time and to ask them who they're going to vote for at some some election. It's getting to be that way. Right. Now, of course, what what's called social media, which you may well have blissfully very little knowledge of yourself personally, things like Twitter and Facebook and so on, this they seem to be, to me, to be taken over now by opinion. That is, these are little blurts of opinion. That's right. There's very little sense of um, an idea to be entertained, to be weighed, to be batted back and forth. So why don't, help, help me understand a little bit more about what is the difference between an idea and an opinion? And what, well, what cultural context do you think um, do, do ideas thrive best in? I think ideas thrive best within a culture of leisure. That is, people who, who you know, the, the great tradition of thinking comes from uh, long periods of contemplation, reflection, silence. Um, I don't know what I think yet until I, you know, I've had time to write it, think it, deliberate it. Um, juries retire to think about what they've heard, that sort of thing. That's, that's where ideas occur about guilt, innocence, death, redemption. Um, opinion means uh, right after the, the, the presidential debate, who won the debate? You know, and there are people at these 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 embassy these these assemblies in Washington, these reporters who will be solicited by members of a particular candidate, who will tell them our candidate won the debate, and and this is why you know she answered more questions in the affirmative, and he kept on insulting her and so forth. That's not that's that's the world of of you know of of opinion, and these little uh, these little. Emojis now. <laughs> We've gotten, you know, this woman sent me because she was, her mother had died. She sent me an emoji, a grieving emoji the other day. <laughs> she couldn't say, you know, I'm heartbroken. She, she had to have this little creature with its downturned lips communicate this. And I thought, we're really moving into a childish world where we really don't know, almost where we, you know, Marcel, what was his name, the, the pantomime? Uh, Marcel Marceau, Marceau, yeah, where he goes through the city and either smiles or or looks downcast and sort of communicates what the mood is that day, as he goes from place to place. Because we don't use words. Well, as I say, I'm I'm pretty willing to buy into this particular narrative of decline, though I've I've uh, debated the concept in other contexts. But let's just say we're getting on in years, and so the world's changing around us. But certain needs. God willing, are are still latent in the human heart and mind. Um, part of what maybe the hope is is that uh, what, what newspapers and book publishers and magazine editors have always done is essentially serve as curators. They're the people who find and select and showcase the work. I think podcasts are maybe an example. What we're doing right here, right now, of Something that's a kind of curation, but that appeals to a younger generation. And I mean in this sense. It seems that these days people need a kind of personal emotional connection with a source of information to feel connected to it, to feel driven to follow it more closely. It's not enough that Knopf or The New Yorker says it. 
So in some ways, I think these podcasts are an attempt to get to a human voice, to a personality. So maybe there are ways, which is still what literature does. I don't know. I'm fumbling here. I'm looking for um, maybe rays of hope for how we can maybe find not substitutes, but analogs, maybe 21st century versions of things that help to create the kinds of space, contemplative, reflective space that that other institutions in the past did. Do you think there's any hope there? There's always hope, but I, I do think, you know, my, my complaint against the worldwide environmental movement, this sentimentality about the green, keep everything green, when the source of life is as often brown in the world, mud, civilizations emerge out of mud many times. Uh, the creationist cycles, God emerges from the mud. He creates life in the, in the Judeo-Christian tradition out of mud. Um, but there is all this flouncing around about green and you know, keep the world green. Keep it always, will always be in April and autumn has nothing to do with life and so forth. This childishness. Well, I keep saying to these environmentalists that, you know, that um, uh, that nature is, is, is varied and it has moods to it. And that since when do you think, having noticed that the dinosaurs no longer roam the world, that nature hasn't been changing, that, has, that hasn't, it, it doesn't have these, these enormous changes, that the, 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 the snow did not melt another, another time in life? Has it just happened now? Or are, are we in the middle of a cycle as ancient as, as the beginning of history? Well, this notion that we're going to stop time, that we're going to um, uh, live in a green civilization. Uh, Barack Obama, in retirement now, has become a kind of dandified version of himself. He flew off to, to Milan on a private airplane, which is what a lot of these environmentalist superstars do on their private airplanes. They With get off. large carbon footprint. Yes, they, they get off, and he gave a speech in Milan to the crowds telling us to have smaller stakes. Because beef <laughs> requires so much green, it, it 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 consumes so much green. So small steaks, if you have to drink, eat a steak at all. Well, in the same way that this this notion we're going to stop time, that the the cultural left is proposing. Um, I I'm I'm prepared to believe that time is is changeable. I'm prepared to believe that I am obsolete, and that the books I've written will not be read in in the world beyond the next few years, that my readers are dying. I'm prepared to believe that the printed book is dying. I'm also prepared to believe, however, that we're headed for some catastrophes because I don't think the book in the religious sense is dying. I think the, the book is, is very much alive in the world, the religious book, the Koran, the Torah, the Bible, and that there are people who embrace that book, literally touch it and kiss it as they would a lover, and that we are living in a civilization where uh, that notion of the book is, has been given up to some notion of the book as ether, as a Kindle book, as something that you can bing, and then you can bing, delete it, and that everything is, is air. It doesn't matter. You can have a president who says something today that he unsays tomorrow. You can have a, a, a yes meaning no. You can have a, a world that has absolutely no attention to, to language, and um, all we have is this emptiness of not being able to say even evil, even goodness, even death. 
We're all going to move to New Zealand, didn't you hear? All these techies are moving to New Zealand, and they're going to somehow save themselves from the apocalypse that the rest of us are, are going to face. What they're going to do in New Zealand uh, bewilders all those Kiwis down there who wonder <laughs> what, they're, what these new neighbors are, except that they're going to glory in green. They're going to raise their green little children who will be as hideous as they are, and they're going to create a little New Zealand Harvard where they can all send them, and they, they'll give commencement addresses and invite Oprah Winfrey, and the woman who leans in, leans out, she'll give a commencement address too. Well, okay. Let me, let me backtrack a little bit because I think you were saying something very intriguing a moment ago uh, <laughs> with the, the sort of the notion of uh, the religious book versus the kind of ethereralized, um, immaterial, uh, fungible, changeable, manipulatable uh, shadow book of, of technology – and it, this, all, this, this really seems to get to me to a lot of uh, what we're dealing with in the world today, which is, I mean, it's easy to rail against fundamentalism and you, you might say religious extremism. But I, I, I have a lingering respect for a response, the response to modernity that says, um, you're superficial, you are precisely changeable. You have no identity, you have no stability, you have no seriousness. Um, you treat things lightly that are sacred, that are fundamental. And it seems to me, again, that we, we're so ready to immediately condemn the, 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 the sort of Muslim of the Dark Ages and use that kind of language without any sense of perhaps um, our own responsibility as kind of modern Westerners in this larger dialectic, this clash of, of time periods, of cultures, of technologies, what, whatever. And it seems to me that you have, you do feel we need to show some respect to people who care about these things so deeply that they become life and death. Yes. Well, I say this as a homosexual man who realizes that in many of these religious communities in the world, I would be an outcast and probably a criminal. Nonetheless, I know uh, about religion enough to know that it gives people in their lives a sense of substance, substantial lives, in which the, the, the drama of their lives, even in these particularities, their sad moments, their moments of joy, the pleasure they have as, a, as children or as old people, their laughter, to give them a significance and a holiness even, to see them as part of a narrative that is ancient and that is as new as tomorrow and to, to, to give them a kind of texture. I think of you know the, the kind of drama that, that Roman Catholicism gave my parents who had no education and gave me at early forms of my education the, the, the convenience, if that's the right word, of having at Sacred Heart School and the Sacred Heart Church in Sacramento to be able to enter a beautiful place architecturally beautiful building and to listen to music that was substantial. Um, the D.A.C. Ray, when the, the coffin is taken out of the church, um, the, the, the Mozart Mass at, at Easter, this is, um, we didn't know this music. This, we would have not heard it anyplace else. The world was listening to Walt Disney and to Elvis Presley and suddenly we had this density 
of human experience. My, my gratitude to religion will always be that it tra- treated me very, very young in my life as a person of substance, as a person of ideas, as a person of emotional re- depth. Um, you know, when, when I, I watch these lines of kids going to see these cartoon Disney movies and so forth, I realize that this is all a manipulation of screenwriters in Hollywood who have run very, very dry on the plot line and hope with special effects that they can somehow bring in the, the money. Um, I worry very much about the lack in the common life of a seriousness and that what we are given instead are these mass entertainments of violence, football spectacles, the, the spectacle now that of, of fans in the audience uh, fighting each other as the, as the gladiators fight on the, on the, on the turf. Um, this emptiness in the life as you, you'll sit in a hotel room and there'll be 100 channels on this hotel, hotel television and there's nothing to watch and nothing that is being said on all of those channels from the, the, the sex scene of Housewives of Atlanta to the sportscasters talking about a baseball game two weeks ago to quiz shows where people are hysterical to win a new refrigerator to, uh, to the most superficial treatments of religion, politics, ideas, where people are brought on a show for two minutes and taken off the show. Um, uh, Comics who are not funny, but what is really interesting lately, because we are so afraid of Islam, is that the most popular comics in the world right now are Muslim comics. Berkeley could not tolerate this, this, this gay conservative Milo guy who was they had a riot about his coming to Berkeley but at their graduation Berkeley invited a Muslim comic uh, he's not the same Muslim comic who was the host of the uh, press associations convent, uh, meeting in, in, in Washington which Donald Trump did not attend but the, the jokester has become the Muslim now in the, in the great secular world because we can laugh at that joke um, because we are afraid not to laugh at that joke. And so the self-deprecating Muslim has now become the jokester for secular America. But in the real world, we're not prepared to take, I think, people of faith seriously. Well, I know we've talked a lot about this sort of sentimentality that seems to pervade so much of even our supposedly serious political talk. I mean, it, we, we can talk earnestly about healthcare solutions or environmental disaster, but at times, as you say, it seems to be based on um, an incredibly sort of strangely uh, vague, wishful thinking about, you know, some ideal world that, um, you know, if only we passed these laws, uh, we would be able to enact. And I guess there's a part of the loss of, of, of ideas, I think, feels like a a loss of a sense of the intractability of some human problems. Yes. The, the fact yes. that we, uh, we're we not going to beat them, we're going to endure them and and escape with the best, you know, best proposition we can come up with. I remember with the AIDS epidemic, I, I, I you know, as a, a Latin American Catholic given to tragedy, I was more of the opinion after having seen so many of my friends die that that we were in for a very long, bad period. And there were these demonstrations, these ACT UP demonstrations, demanding of Washington more 
research money and so forth. And I thought to myself, I said to many of my friends, what if there is no cure? What if we're in for some something quite new in the world? Or what if the cure is like two or three generations away? What then in the American plot line where science can always solve these problems? It turned out that there was soon uh, inhibitors that, that, that were helpful and that ultimately now you can have unsafe sex and not and even live with, with HIV, as young people are doing these days, even seeking to get HIV so they don't have to worry about, about the disease. They say it to, to me. I do have this sense, though. I, I attended as, in graduate school a place called the Warburg Institute in London, named after uh, Abby Warburg of the great German banking family that was forced out of Germany. And he brought his fortune to, to London and created this center for intellectual thought that was focused on those centuries in Europe when uh, the medieval age becomes the modern age. And, uh, and particularly, he was interested in the age of magic becoming the age of science and how they were interrelated. And that he, what he understood was that the, the father of the scientist is a magician. What the scientist today doesn't seem to understand quite as well is that they're... they're, they're, they're family history connects them to a world of mystery and magic. And we use science now as a way of not having to deal with mystery and magic. We think science will so somehow obliterate the shadow. What the, what the Middle Ages becoming the Renaissance understood is that science understands itself as coming out of mystery so that the great artists of the Middle Ages become Renaissance figures are scientists who are also artists. Michelangelo, for example, Leonardo, for example. These men were artists, poets, painters, sculptors, botanists, architects, engineers, the same person. And that what they understood was that um, the totality of knowledge is such that science does not obliterate mystery, but it, it deepens it. Mm. And that the real scientist does not proclaim himself to be a man without shadow, but he takes us further into the shadow. You know, it's funny, we use the term Renaissance man, but we we seem to only mean that someone's good at many things when we forget the notion that the many things were part of a wholeness or a unified way of looking at all aspects of life. And so we, we, we think of it as maybe a you know, a kind of uh, class uh, or professional achievement to call somebody a Renaissance man, but we lose precisely that sense, that humanistic sense. That's right. That felt well, that these things were interrelated. They're, they're inevitably interrelated. But, but you know, our academic culture is such that everything is divi divided up. Oh, you're a chemist. Therefore, you don't, you don't need to know about musicology and so forth. Though I was giving a talk the other day in San Antonio to young scientists, these are high school kids who were... Uh, black and brown students who were going on to college and being in the basement of this hotel were being solicited by the best schools in the country because they'd wanted science fairs and so forth. And um, I told them to become the next artists of the next generation. Uh, the, you know, their, their, their chemistry is good enough right now, but don't let their, their piano playing linger back there. This woman raised her hand and she said, you know, I'm, uh, I already have two children. I'm not married. I have two children. I go to my high school, and I'm the best of the school in, in chemistry. I'm really good. But I come home, and I'm really tired, and the kids are hungry, and I have to feed them. 
and you're telling me to become something else at, at the house, to study music when I come home? <laughs> I had to cook dinners, she said. I said, no, cook dinner. But realize that the chemist is cooking dinner, that what the chemist is doing when she stirs the pot is what the chemist does in the laboratory, stirring the pot. You're seeing what the ingredients do when mixed together, what works together, that it's the world that you're still investigating, you know? Why do you separate your chemistry? You close the door at the university and you become something else in the kitchen. You are still a chemist. If I had, I was, as a, as a young man, I was a very good mathematician. I was told by that, by teachers. But I didn't pay any, any mind because I was being published in high school and newspapers and so forth, and so I let by, uh, mathematics go. I regret that very much now because I think I could have been a better poet had I been also a mathematician. Mm. That, that poetry is metrics, and I, would have under, I could have heard numbers dancing in my sleep if I had studied mathematics. We have so compartmentalized knowledge that we don't realize that it's all one and that Mozart is as much a theologian as uh, as Auden um, and as um, Jonas Salk, that it was all the discovery of the mystery not only deepens it but increases it. And um, that's the world yeah. that I yearn for. You know, talking about academic specialization and this kind of divisive way of looking at the world makes me wonder. I'm not sure I've ever asked you. I mean, you could easily have gone into academia. I mean, easily. You had all the mental equipment and the interest in the depth of knowledge of subjects like Renaissance literature. Was there a moment when you, you sort of self-consciously said, you know, no, I'm not going to do that? Or did you just find yourself well, I, I would, to literary journalism? And Stephen Carter, the, the law professor at Yale, called me in an article once. Uh, an affirmative action baby. Uh, I was at that first generation that suddenly the fact that I was different was no longer a secret, but was suddenly prized. And I remember even Michael Novak, uh, the theologian, saying in response to an essay I wrote on uh, Evelyn Waugh, the novelist, that maybe I felt so deeply Waugh's sense of alienation from the modern world because I was a Chicano. Mm. It was such an absurdity that I would feel this connection to an upper-class Brit writing about a lost Catholic world of the upper class because I was a working-class Mexican-American. It was absurdity, and yet it became part of the, the culture of the, of, the, of the time that I was suddenly seen in my intellectual life as coming at it from precisely this, this notion of disadvantage, in my case, ethnic disadvantage. It, it, it became impossible after a time that I, I realized that the advantage is coming to me including the job offers from some very distinguished universities were coming to me for all the wrong reasons, that I was expected to be uh, a minority scholar reading Milton, and that I guess I was supposed to find the metrics in Milton that connected him to hip-hop or something. And I could even come up with a Broadway musical called Milton, Milton Sachets or something, and we could all bounce around the stage, and all the gringos would come, and they'd watch it, and they'd love it, and then they'd all go home, and they'd all dance at home. Um, but what became clear to me was that the, the, the key to the kingdom in that case was all flawed and that I was assumed to be different. When I had always used education as a way to become you, suddenly I was being told by the education system that I was not you, that I was alien to you, and that was my value. 
when I had always thought that the reason I wanted to be uh, schooled was because I wanted to become like the people I was reading. I wanted to become like them, not unlike them. Uh, the game changed. So that I knew that when I started publishing my unpopular articles about affirmative action, bilingual education, the, the romantic flaw in bilingual education that you could use a family language in a classroom, which was the, pre the premise in those days, and not understanding that the, the notion of a of family language is necessarily alien to the language of the classroom. These are different kinds of language. It's like talking the language of two in Spanish, the intimate pronoun, and usted in Spanish. These are two different ways of speaking. And that people were telling me that it's too bad that I didn't use my family Spanish in the classroom, as though it wouldn't have been possible to bring my Appalachian white English into the classroom and not have to change it, you know. The romantic ideal, the, 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 uh, the shepherd intellectual. Um, well, that became so difficult for me. And that um, there have been many times, and there are certainly many schools in this country, that would never invite me to speak there. Uh, large Mexican-American populations never get invited. I've never been invited to any school in university in L.A., ever. Uh, it, it's just impossible. Um, because of the antipathy toward this renegade Mexican-American who thinks that, you know, he wants to turn his back on his past. When what I'm arguing is that the, the, the distinction of that past cannot be trivialized by merely bringing it into the academy and say, here, I'm, uh, I have a sombrero on and I will read Shakespeare because I have a sombrero. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, it's more complicated than that. So uh, did I regret? I miss teaching. I miss being around young people at the, at the beginning. I miss the university library. I miss the campus. Um, and then I didn't. And I see a place like Yale, which I was, I was going to go to Yale. I'd been, I'd been invited to come to Yale. And this place now, this safe spaces, and this trigger language, and what you can't say, and changing the name of Calhoun College. And the whole thing is just as though, you know, we're going to get rid of the slave owner's name on the building. And that will clear us of the implication of history, which is that we are the beneficiaries of tragedy. That's, that's our fate, that we are the beneficiaries of the slaughter of Indians. As we're sitting in our, in, our, in our very fancy house in Colorado, looking at the view, the reason we do that is because we have benefited from the slaughter of the Indians. And yet we can deal with that, but we can't deal with the fact that Wilson, that Woodrow Wilson was anti-black and we have to somehow erase his name from, from Princeton. It is this childish notion of history that we cannot redeem the, 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 the evils of the past by turning them against them and making them, uh, making ourselves brave and intellectual in a way that the, the, our forefathers was, were not. So Calcoot, Calhoun was a slave owner. So become a prominent uh, uh, intellectual within that within that building. Bewilder him, bewilder his ghost. Turn it upside down. No, we have to scrub the name down. We have to. We have to. Anybody who's who's insensitive uh, toward my culture and 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 is wearing a. a uh, a sombrero at a, at a Halloween festival at Yale is somehow mocking me. Uh, uh, anybody who's serving Mexican food at Oberlin College is app appropriating my culture. It is just one absurdity after another. Do I want to be there 
Would I like to be at that campus? Would I like to be among those hideous children and their administrators who bow to them and give them every license? No, I do not. Yeah, fair enough. Well, you know, it's, it's over the years you've definitely established this reputation of being independent and saying things that um, many that offend and, and uh, are unpopular in various ways. Do you, do you ever feel um, that there's been too great a cost to that? Or do you feel a kind of inner peace about the, the kind of path that you've forged? Well, I, I, I mean, these opinions are rather uninteresting because I've heard myself say them so much. I guess what's more interesting in being contrarian is that you can start entertaining ideas about good and evil that are, that are interesting. I mean, um, I'm always prepared to, to look uh, at, at, the, at failure as possibly also a source of redemption. Uh, that um, I heard the story, I don't even know if it's true, of this Catholic priest who was arrested, this old man, and um, for molesting teenage boys or prepubescent boys, whatever, belly rubbing in a, in a rectory somewhere. And he's broken, and he's in jail. But then I heard that he has now become a priest in jail. He's become a minister to other broken men. And I like that. I like the, the, the Graham Greene shape of that drama, that the sinner can become the savior. Uh, Graham Greene's greatest novel, I think, was his novel about Mexico, The Power and the Glory, which is about the whiskey priest who, during a persecution of Catholicism in Mexico, when the Marxist government in Mexico City closed the churches and outlawed priests and nuns from wearing clerical garb in public, this could only happen in Catholic Mexico. Nonetheless, in this village, the man who stays behind when everybody else is left is the whiskey priest who is drunk. And he says the mass drunk. He is drinking the wine drunk. And he's the best of them. And I think to myself, you know, the thing about being a contrarian is that you begin to see things that, how complicated things are. I, you know, I, I knew Lynn Cheney, the wife of the vice president for some time, and she was very good to me. Um, but the Cheneys, I noticed, who were in, in various ways the great villains of my friends, the, the leftists and, my, and certainly um, as vice president, encouraged a kind of recklessness in the Middle East that I didn't support. Nonetheless, they were the model parents for having gay children. Mm. Um, it wasn't the fancy people in the nice suburbs of, of you know, of College Town, USA, the, the, the honorable people that we call ourselves. It was the Cheneys and who, who, who stood up, who were public, who didn't blink, and who supported their daughter, you know. And uh, I think to myself, you know, that, that possibility that not everybody who listens to NPR is better than everybody who listens to Fox, you know, that possibility is still um, only being born in the world right now mm. because we have so colorized our virtue that we don't understand how complicated it is. Yeah. All right, well, <laughs> I do want to wrap up. And My mother would always come to that point at, the, at a dinner when she said, thank you, Rich." <laughs> no, no, I just, I'm thinking of your time and our listeners' time. Um, I, I saw written down somewhere, and I think it may have come from you, that you are at least 
contemplating another book or a, a subject matter. Am I dreaming this? It said you were interested in writing on beauty? Well, I'm interested in beauty. I've always been, as, as an ugly man, I've always been interested in beauty. And uh, just because it was so interesting around me. And I'm interested in when people lose their beauty. That whole term that she's lost her beauty, as though it went away, it went out the door. Um, I'm interested in those cultures where one doesn't lose a beauty. The French, for example, who admire their old actress and ha having watched her age and so forth. Um, Jean Moreau, who was always called in France, jolie laid, you know, the, the notion of being beautiful and ugly at the same time. Those very complicated notions of beauty are very interesting to me. I'm interested in fashion. I'm a gay man, after all. I mean, what else do I do except dress women up in my mind? Um, I, I very much admired Yves Saint Laurent, but I admired Balenciaga. I've written about both of them and how different they were um, in, in Darling, my last book. Um, the, the undressing of women by heterosexual men and the dressing of women by homosexual men is very interesting to me. And I love going shopping. On Super Bowl Sundays, what I do with my uh, lady friends, the heterosexual ones, um, is we go to fancy department stores and we buy clothes. For, and she won't buy the dress without my approval, you know? And when and I tell her, cut it shorter, cut your hair shorter, let it, let it, let it be long, I say. You know, you look so much better. And that's what we do. We, we cut their hair, we, we give them their makeup, we tell them, uh, we give them their shoes, we give them their dresses. We are, we are in every way their best ally in the ensnarement of the heterosexual man who's watching a dreadful football game and who stumbles home after all of that and says, doesn't even notice that she's got the new dress. Does beauty have a, a sort of metaphysical value to you? Is there a sense in which it, you know, it, it feels like it's an important thing for us to to cultivate, to... Well, we have, we have these notions as, as old as grandmother's warning that if we masturbate, we will, we will grow hives on our hands or whatever, <laughs> that, that evil has consequences on our face. Uh, what, what Milton, of course, does in Paradise Lost is that he, he makes Satan beautiful. Uh, and, uh, and that's an interesting notion, that evil can be beautiful is very interesting. Um, and that uh, rather this, this notion we have that, that evil is ugly, that we are repelled by beauty, is in too many instances proved by, disproved, that we are attracted to beauty even at the cost of its evil. Mm. Uh, and that's interesting. These are old questions. And why we have associated um, virtue with, good, with, with beauty is a very interesting question. And why we associate ugliness with sin, why the witch is always ugly and why the princess is always beautiful is a very interesting question to me. Yeah. I would have taken, you know, when I was in, in grammar school, I was clearly the, uh, not an attractive boy in the class. I was talented and I was a wit in the class, but I was not a player. And there was a girl named Lynn Pullman in my cl uh, seventh grade class, and we had a school dance in the classroom. And Lynn Pullman was very well developed at that age, and she was the, the subject of great discussion and lust from the young boys. And the, at the dance, there was a moment where girls could choose their male partner. She came over and asked me to dance. And I realized now how complicated that was, 
that the beauty in the class would ask the, 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 the ugly boy in the class to dance as a way of avoiding those leering, hideous male faces around us. All of them were watching this dance. We were at the center of the, of the ballroom. Uh, that I think sometimes beautiful people, rather like uh, you know, very rich people, come very early to realize what an oppression it is mm. to be beautiful mm. um, and how troubling that is. I used to know an actor in Los Angeles. I won't mention who he was, um, but he had a very beautiful face, and he, got, he started making very mediocre detective movies. This was in the 70s, and he kept getting in crashes, car crashes on, on Pacific Coast Highway and overturning his car. At about the fourth crash, one began to realize that he was trying to destroy himself. Mm. He was trying to just, and you see this, of course, with, you know, the teenage girl who was modeling in Milan at the runway and who goes home and cuts herself, you know. Um, there is in this destruction of one's own beauty these lessons of the complication of it all that are very interesting to me and um, part because they take so much of the religious discussion in the Virgin Mary who must always be beautiful. Richard, I, I, I love that we could keep going and for hours and uh, hopefully one day we'll get a chance to do this again but thanks so much for sharing all of this with us on the Image Podcast. Thanks, Greg. If you're listening, Richard, you can count on the Image audience to be readers who do still take pleasure in reading complicated sentences. For more of Richard Rodriguez's work in the pages of Image, check out issues 55, 78, and 34. Thanks for joining us. I'm Paul Anderson, and this has been the Image Podcast.